it, it happens to the best of us. One time or another, you find yourself becoming that corporate yes girl. You sit there, you bite your tongue, you just go along with it, not because you agree or you think it's the best way, but because, you know, I don't know, you just do. Well, today, Kim Boudreaux-Smith is going to help you find your bold voice, how to respond when your boss tells you a raise isn't in the budget, how to physically sit in a meeting that's going to command respect. Plus, in our No Dumb Questions segment, you know, sometimes you just don't want to share, and that time is during a divorce. So if your name is on it, does that mean it's yours and only yours? And in our seat at the kids table segment, I guess we're gonna go from one end of marriage to the other. When your kid falls blissfully in love and it's time for the big wedding, who's paying for that? Is it on you, the parent? Well, mom, listen up. We're gonna give you a simple solution to the wedding stress in the last 10 minutes of the show. All right, thank you so much for making time to listen to the podcast, for sharing the podcast. We are trying to take the awkwardness out of the money conversation and give you a good understanding of what your options are. Before we find our bold voice with Kim Boudreaux-Smith, let's start the show with No Dumb Questions. Time for No Dumb Questions. Erica Cummings, a CFP at the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management, hosted the podcast, A Strong Woman for Strong Women. How are you, Erica? I'm great. How are you? We do have a question from a listener. It's kind of, it's about divorce, Erica. You ready? (laughs) Ready. Uh, Sadly, my (laughs) husband and I have uh, decided to divorce after 15 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. Is my IRA considered marital property? It is in my name only. So sadly, this year has definitely been difficult on all of us. So I'm not surprised at the timing of this question. Um, And as a side note, this question is asked of me so often from friends and peers of mine, because, you know, we do have our ups and downs. I want to just put a disclaimer in here that I am not an attorney. I don't pretend to be an attorney, but I do know just enough to be dangerous So I've been through this a few times with clients. New York state is what's called an equitable distribution state, which means the court will divide marital property between spouses in a way that is what they consider to be equitable or fair. And this sometimes is a bone of contention when there's a divorce because people have in their minds what's ha- going to happen from other people's stories or something they saw somewhere. And New York is pretty black and white. There's not a whole lot of gray in when it comes to divorce. So judges only divide marital property only. So what needs to happen when you get, when you enter into a separation is to determine what is your own property which would be considered separate property if you owned it before the marriage. That's critical, before the marriage. Then generally, any property that was either acquired or was earned during the marriage would be Uh considered marital property. Even though it's in your name? Yes. So separate property is property that you owned before you were married, It can include property that you received during the marriage, like a gift or an inheritance, or if you were in a lawsuit of some type and you were rewarded some type of personal injury. So that's not not to say that every single thing you earn during the time you're married is marital property. But for the most part, if you earned any money, saved any money, bought anything during the time in your marriage, that portion is considered marital property and will be, like I said, divided in an equitable and fair way. Her IRA then, using her as the the example, I guess, her IRA. So from 15 years ago to today, that is marital property. Anything before 15 years, like way past that, that she keeps? Got it. Ah. And they will look at that. They, They have different algorithms and equations they use to determine the rate of return that may have happened during a certain period of time if they need to. So if you, a lot of, a lot of people now go into marriages with some type of savings already. We're not Mm -hmm. typically getting married like our parents did when they were in their very early twenties. So most of us sometimes own homes before we get married. 
these is the types of things. And no one goes into a marriage saying, I want to be strategic about how we do this because we're probably going to end up divorced. So that's what, you know, unfortunately, the hard part is that we, we go into a marriage thinking this is going to be happily ever after. And we do do some things that could end up commingling assets. So that's the other thing. So not so much with retirement assets, but let's say you owned a home prior to the marriage. That would be separate property. But if you refinance, and then your spouse starts paying half the mortgage and you do a whole bunch of renovations and your spouse is helping to pay those renovations, oh. you've now just commingled that property. Ooh, so just because okay. you owned it from the beginning doesn't necessarily mean that it doesn't become a marital asset. If you've always kept it separate and you know, you've made different changes in the house and then that, that increased its value. Um, if it, you know, like I said, if it comes from any type of joint money, then it will be considered a marital ah, asset. Interesting. But again, okay. we're not, I was joking with you earlier when we chatted that I think I've saved more marriages by <laughs> telling people this, because when someone calls me up and says, Hey, I'm, I'm, I really can't stand them anymore. Can I keep my 401k separate? And I tell them, no, uh, suddenly they're okay again. So it's just, pour themselves a glass of wine and they muster through another day. No, exactly. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Okay. And I think both you and I will equally say this out loud. The disclaimer is if it is not a healthy relationship though, it doesn't matter the money you get your culo out of there. Yes, absolutely. Eric and I support and help. We are here for you. Only there are lots of wonderful, wonderful people in the, you know, that have expertise behind this that can help you. The biggest thing is to make sure you do your research. You want to make sure you have good representation. You want to, you know, make like any other giant decision, have as many people around you as possible with, with the the best level of expertise. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Erica, how can we find you and uh, follow you? You can find us at harmonyfinancialwellness.com. We also have our podcast on there that you can link to, especially the ladies out there. It's called A Strong Woman for Strong Women. You can email me directly at erica.cummings at rbc.com. And we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Perfect. Have a good weekend. You too. We are going to give you the nudge that you need, the loving push, so you can stop being the yes girl and instead find your bold voice. Kim Boudreaux-Smith joins us next. Smith, speaker and leadership coach for female executive leaders and women entrepreneurs, author, podcast host, speak your bold truth, passionate advocate of women's bold voices. How are you? Good, Sandy. How are you? We're kind kind of neighbors, Michigan, New York, Michigan. Yeah. And we have mutual friends, which is awesome. Sheila Kennedy has been on the show before. So, yeah. Yes. Now, I want to start here because you refer to yourself as the average corporate yes girl. I said what people wanted to hear. I was bullied in corporate America and then wrongfully terminated for not speaking up. It was a pretty sad saga. Can you explain that a little bit further? Well, and this was like in my before life. So I'm going to refer myself. Maybe I'm a cat or something, even though I have dogs, maybe I have multiple lives. I don't know, but... I was the number one shining star in this company and worked my way up from a part-time local marketing part-time position, two weeks in the position, the market manager here in Detroit walked out and they said, congratulations, you're it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And I was learning on the fly, which I'm very good at. I do better at learning on the fly as opposed to let's do a lot of preparation and then let's jump in. And one thing just led to another from taking over this market here in Detroit. Uh, We were independent contractors um, for Sears. If you ever remember the Sears store. Oh yeah. So my people would approach you walking inside of Sears going, hi, would you like a complimentary uh, cabinet refacing um, bid or a vinyl siding? Mm -hmm. So when I took that over, we were inside of nine Sears stores and I think maybe 12 people when I left and was promoted to a regional position, we were inside of 25 Sears stores. I had 42 part-time employees, a full-time assistant. And I mean, I was a rock star and all doing this based upon lies and learning on the fly. And um, when I got promoted 
the gentleman, the national director that I was working under, they promoted him and uh, him and I had a very strong working relationship. They brought another man in and unbeknownst to me, he was very jealous of me when I'm making him a lot of money, very jealous of me and set me up. So wrongfully terminated, took me for a loop. But then I have that attitude of screw this. I got a phenomenal resume. And at this time I was living in Boca Raton, Florida. I'm that's it. I can, I can go and get other jobs. But the problem at that time, there was a lot of tr um, transition going on in Florida. So the job offers were great, but the pay was low because they can get anybody. And I was like, I'm not doing this. Not doing this. Uh, now wait, how old were you? Was this like one of your first careers or how, how old are we? This talking? is like one of my first, first major okay. corporate careers. So I was in my twenties. Okay. So in your twenties, you almost are like so eager to impress, to just go along with it. Yes. Right. Yes. My parents are uneducated blue collar workers and don't, they never miss a day of work. And so I have that pounded into my head. I also have work, work, work pounded into your head. Forget the education. So I built my corporate career based upon lies at the time. I've cleaned the lies up since <laughs> several years ago. I cleaned the lies up, but um, what do you mean lies? What what lies are you referring okay, to? Okay, so on the resume, way back then, <laughs> way uh -huh, back uh -huh. then, you could <laughs> say you had all this stuff and experience. They didn't check. Oh, statistically, women are the ones who don't lie enough or don't fluff up the truth and you did. like I point blank lied by saying I had college education and everything point blank lied <gasps> wow well hey I'm gonna say good for you I cleaned all that up I it uh at about four when I was 48 and fell asleep at a major intersection right here by my home that was the light switch and that's when I said no more lies because they're catching up with me because I'm trying to live based upon what society thinks I'm, I'm this very successful, I had this very successful corporate career. I have these multiple successful um, entrepreneurial businesses, but I did the corporate career based upon what I should be doing. My parents yeah, yeah. never did this. So I'm going to <clears throat> rise above for the acceptance of them because I would hear my mom talk about all my cousins and how successful that they were in their corporate positions and titles uh -huh. and money. And so I just, I cleaned it all up when I turned, by the time I was 50, everything was cleaned up. Did you feel it was all because of the pressure? Yes. Yes. And to make money but because my parents are about making money. The, you don't, my parents never pumped education. They pumped, you go to work. If you want these groovy pair of cool jeans, We'll give you the $10 for the jeans from Kmart's. But if you want those cool jeans from the other store that are 20, you need to work and make up for that. So I did. Wow. What, what influenced you though? Was it all on your own, the influence to, Hey, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this job. I'm going to do whatever it takes to move up the ladder. It was, it was just that pressure. It was pressure. And, you know, a lot of I've, you know, I think the universe is watching my back. I mean, it was took one person to walk into the, um, uh, here in Detroit, the offices who needed a part-time job. And I hired her almost on the spot. And she said, so how many more people do you need? She goes, I have a lot of connections. And I said, poor men. Those women turned, helped turn the market around. They mm -hmm. were uh, housewives, Jehovah Witnesses, and Jehovah Witnesses are not afraid to approach people. They're very proactive and they're awesome at sales and marketing. And so it was these women that uh, husbands worked or husbands didn't work and wanted to contribute part-time to a family. Yeah. So I hired, I brought them all on and we just rocked it in Detroit. Well, see now, listen, that little white lie <laughs> of your college education and whatnot. I mean, you were good. You knew how to do it. You were, you were talented. You worked your way up to the, you know, up the ranks, I think, because you were very good at what you were doing. But in those corporate boardrooms, did you feel like you had to, it was almost like an out-of-body experience for you. You had to put on this facade like you fit in. 
Because at that time, was it more male dominated? At that one hundred percent. After I lost this, after I lost this career position, you know, after they moved me to Florida, I eventually came back to Detroit, and the one gentleman who I had a very strong working relationship with, um, he had moved on. The company eventually ended up with so much going on, had closed down. He handed me over to another company here locally. I'm talking male dominant. And I'll, I was, oh, I was Sandy. I was so stuck between a rock and a hard place. Okay. The rock was all the men in upper management, which is what I was sitting with. They would all go off to lunch together and not invite Kim. And then it was time at the end of the day to leave. They would say, hey, Kim, we want to discuss over lunch what we talked about. Not going to happen. And then all the women that worked there, they didn't want anything to do with me because I was down the other hall with, with upper management. It was, it was, I spent many a days in that bathroom, tears and yeah, feeling separated. And I just, it was not in a good place. And it was very male, male dominant, very male dominant. And I also had a gentleman who was very micromanager, not respecting my background because I was overseeing a brand was project manager. I was overseeing a brand new project. And it's like, if you get off my back and just let me go, I'll get this pro- this, these products up and out there. But they were constantly suffocating me and putting me down in these boardroom meetings with all the men. I mean, to the point where I'd have to hold it until I could get to the bathroom and, you know, and do the tears. And I just, I remember the day I walked in and resigned from this place. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And they, and a couple of the other men said, no, we don't want you. And I'm like, oh no, I'm out until you make some major changes. I'm out. Wow. But you know, it's refreshing to know that that's changing, yes. right? You see it changing. Yeah. I mean, it's in some industries, it's slowly changing. Some industries are, are evolving a little bit quicker, but it's fascinating to hear the stories directly from the women who lived in that time. Yeah. It was very, I mean, there was no, there was very little progression than what we have now, you know, and there's still, we still have a long ways to go. You know, women, you know, in those boardrooms, women need to stop being quiet and stand up for other women and men, you know, don't necessarily, my attitude, Sandy is look, you know, the expression is if you don't, if there's not a chair at the table, bring a chair. I'm like, don't even bother. Go get a chair, stand up and speak. And these men don't need to be gentlemanly. They can, if they want to get up and give a woman her chair, they need to stand up and stand next to our side, stand side of us in corporate, yeah. you know, and start speaking up that, no, we're not going to do this. So that we're going to change this up because it's not just all upon us. We all have work to do. So none of that was going on because there weren't any women in my position. There weren't. I was working with all men. You You were a lone wolf. I was. So what have you, okay. So it's almost like, and you know how they say it's very cliche, but things happen for a reason. So maybe all of that happened to lead you to the path of where you are today with helping lift other women up and find their quote, bold voice, like you say. So what is it when you're speaking, whether it is in a room full of people, whether it's, you know, on stage in an event or just one-on-one with your manager, what are these things that women struggle with and you still see it today? Imposter syndrome, Mm. status quo, you know, playing instead of getting to a point of being um, a disruptor, you know, it's that status quo, having to be the good girl, the nice girl, apologizing for being there in those spaces. When women need to realize it's okay, especially on, a, on an application or a job description, we don't have to have every box checked off. We can evolve and grow into it. And we need to learn how to speak that when we're being in interviews, or if we're in positions going in to talk to our team lead of really leaning in and saying, and not being accusatory from a victim standpoint, but from a very victress standpoint and saying, Hey, I have ideas here and this is how I'm feeling. And I would like to be a part of this implementation. If we don't speak up with our ideas and our truths in these meetings, we're going to get bypassed for exposure and for um, advancement, you know, and then that leads to more frustration and more imposter syndrome. And that's 
for you know women shrink down and get quiet and don't want to speak up because they don't have enough degrees or they're the new kid on the block and it's like no we need to speak whether there's enough degrees or not or whether there's enough certifications or not whether you're the new kid or the old kid on the block you have to speak yeah, yeah. i don't know how many other people feel this way too but you know, sometimes when you're at home and you're quote unquote rehearsing for that meeting or that one-on-one, -on -one, you got it. You nailed it. I got this. I'm going in there. And then you go in there and you talk confidently and they'll say something to you like, well, I don't think it's the right time for the raise or it's not in the budget or I don't know. They'll say their corporate, whatever they say, and it throws you and you're like, I can't do this anymore, yeah. you know, cause you're almost putting on this fake confidence. How do you overcome that when, you know, just by nature, a lot of us are emotional creatures and it's almost like we're acting like someone we're not really. Well, you know, that's my big thing is get into curiosity and, and interview them as well. So just, and I don't mean in an interview entry, you know, you're entering into a, a, a position, but interview them as well. What do you mean there's not enough money in the budget? And, you know, we had discussed that this was the trajectory. What can we do together to keep on this trajectory for um, this promotion or for this? What more do you need from me at this point? You know, and just start asking questions, you know, uh, and, and do, so to speak, call to actions and timelines uh, in, instead of walking out and just going, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know what their timeline is. I don't know. They just said they didn't have money in the budget. It's like, dig deeper, start asking. Just ask them. Okay. Ask them what's up. Okay. So there's no money in the budget today, but what can we do over the next 90 days, over the next six months? How can we stay on trajectory? How can we stay on the path here? You know, and then also too, I'm a big proponent of please don't walk out and quit your job unless you've got something lined up, but maybe a strategic plan within the next, you know, six months, six to 12 months of moving on. It might not be the right place. What is it with our body language that we need to work on? Oh gosh. Okay. So I'm a big proponent, even sitting here uh, in my office is my feet are, they're not completely flat on the floor. Cause I'd be like, um, um, what's her name? Edith and Saturday night live with my <laughs> <laughs> Cause I got my chair up so high, you know, I love her. <laughs> You know, the, so I've got a really yes, nice I deal with that often too. Yeah. I'm a little short Italian, so I feel you. Okay. Yeah. So I've got a little, um, really nice foot, um, booster. My legs, I'm not seeing with my legs crossed or anything. My feet are oh. flat. My feet are flat. Okay. I'm upright. I'm back. My shoulders are down. My chest is open. And as you can see, when I'm in person or whether I'm leading something here virtually, I move my hands. I talk with, I'm an ex high impact aerobic instructor. I move. But when we are closed down or, you know, hands underneath the table, and we've got this mindset going on of saying, you know, I, I'm sorry, but I would love, you know, I asked for my salad dressing on the side of my salad. We're shrinking. Okay. First of all, if you ordered your salad dressing on the side of your salad, you ordered your salad dressing on the side of your salad. Now, I, you don't need to be like Miranda in The Devil Wears Prada, but yeah, maybe sometimes, I don't know. But, you know <laughs> it's just, it's being open and calm and breathing. So before I got to this interview, I took a couple steps up and down my hallway. I do some deep breathing. I do some, you know, I just stretch and loosen my body up. And I come down and I sit and I'm ready to go. Okay. What if you're, what if you don't like, okay. So I keep going back to the one-on-one -on -one cause I think that's the most relatable for a lot of people when they're face to face with their manager and they're asking for something. What if you don't like what they're saying? Do you posture up even more and stay, you know, shoulders back? Or do you kind of like do like across your hands? Like, I don't, believe what you're saying and you slouch down and you give like the impression of I've checked out like what's more impactful well you know I've done both <laughs> yeah a little bit of both but yes <laughs> I'm a big proponent as I'm starting to back up from my desk I'm a big proponent of if we're not liking what we are here in any conversation especially a one-on-one -on -one conversation is 
sometimes we do need to get a little bit more stronger within our posture. I don't think it's a hands-on hips, especially if we're in person, standing up, leaning into a table, unless you're demonstrating something. I think it's very important that you stay very grounded in your knowing and your strength of staying open. My big thing is pause. Power of pause is flipping powerful. If you don't like what they're hearing, take a deep breath, pause, pause that conversation, and then lean in and say, here's what's next. I have, you know, and lead into the next question, or you're leading into the next statement or whatever the case may be. It, that power. How do you remind yourself of that? I tend to be, and I'm sure there's a lot of us out there that are just like, especially when we're nervous or we're anxious and we just want to well, yeah, you were a high impact instructor. You were like, come on, let's go, let's go. So how do you remind yourself to just shut up <laughs> and sit there? Well, my back in the back in the olden days of sales training, the expression was the who speaks first loses. Oh, okay. number one. So number two is breathing. Ah. Uh. Just taking it, just taking a breath and it doesn't have to, you saw my chest expand. Those are some deep, mm-hmm. those are some deep guttural breaths, which is a pre-stage <laughs> ritual going into anywhere, but just pausing, just taking a breath. And then what I love is watching the other person start taking off. And then I lean in and go, excuse me, I was not done speaking here. Like our vice president did. I'm speaking. I'm speaking. Oh, Hang on. Yeah. Um, my husband likes to do that. You know, when we're, when we're talking and stuff like that, I've, hold on. I wasn't finished. I'm speaking. Oh, oh, oh. You know, because we are a society that pause is so nerve wracking. It's like that when yeah. people pause, it's like that pause. I'm just catching my breath. I'm letting my body, I'm, tr- I'm trying, I'm, I, I'm staying in my body. I'm letting my brain catch up. So here's what I hear you saying. How can we come to a collaborative effort here? And, you know, you'll watch people jump in when you pause and take a breath. You just simply say, I wasn't finished. Hang on. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't finished. Yeah. What, was the, what was the first time? Okay. Because first, were you always like that? And if not, okay. You're, yeah, you're saying no. What was that moment? Do you remember that day where you're like, oh, I got it? I got, I understand how this works now and how to do this. Hmm. Uh, years ago, but I'm still learning it. Yeah. Okay. I'm still, I'm still practicing it. I'm still learning it. Uh-huh. You know, uh, the first time where you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I took control over that meeting. Yes. Um, it did not happen to me in corporate. It wasn't until afterwards when I started my own business and it wasn't until probably around when I was 48, when I fell asleep at the red light, major intersection is, I think that's when all that was starting to swing back around going that life was controlling me. And I was very living very, uh, very without lust and passion. And that's where all that unraveling and switching and all the different learning that I was, that I was doing. Let's go there. Now, what happened that day, that, that life-changing moment? So there's a street here called Woodward Avenue right by my home. It's four lanes south, four lanes north with a medium in the middle. It's a busy road. And it was an August sunny day, noon. I was coming home from uh, my fitness business, a client. And I got to this red light right here by my home. And I, unbeknownst to me, I fell asleep. And what, the reason why I knew I fell asleep is because my head fell forward. And I went, <gasps> and thank God my foot stayed on the brake. But then I did it again, seconds later, head fell forward. Oh my God, I got to get home. I don't know what home was going to do for me, but I got to get home. So I came home, I got out, I looked at my car, went, oh, and got in the house, like Dorothy wearing red slippers, you know, no place like home going, what, the, what is my home going to do for me? And that's when I paused big time and said, I'm looking forward to turning 50. I was 48 and a half at the time. So I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And I, I realized that every morning, I'm a morning person. 
every morning I was waking up and before I got out of bed, I was saying, what does my schedule look like that I could come back to bed? When do I get to come back to bed today? So I talked to myself and because I was living without passion and luster. And I saw my first step the next morning, aside from making a couple of phone calls, because I believe in reaching out for the support. The next morning, instead of waking up going, I wonder what my schedule's like, I woke up and went, damn, that drywall above my head is looking really nice. Thank you. Got up. I started with the gratitude. Gave me the energy. You were just, you were just working too hard. I was working. I had a very successful fitness business at this time. Uh, and I, I was, I was very unhappy. I was burnt out. I was tired. Yeah. I just, yeah. I, I, I was lacking clarity of what direction I wanted to do. I just, I was, I was that B O R E D word. I was bored, you know, and there was yeah. no reason for me to be bored. And that was a real pivotal shift for me where it was time to stop going outside my body and start turning in. So many people right now are probably like, amen. How do I do that? I think we've all had that moment where we forget to set boundaries. Mm -hmm. Boundaries with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then in turn with other people, you know, I mean, I had a, I look back on that day and that the client's home that I was coming from is very influential um, in our state. His first cousin is a retired United States Senator. They're all judges, lawyers. It was such an honor to train this man. And one of the things I realized back then, um, and he just passed this past November after I've, I've not been training with him for a year and a half, because I still do a little bit my fitness business. You know, he was 94 when he passed. So when I stopped training him, he was 92. I, I've been with him through milestones of birthdays and, you know, a long time. And one of the things I thought, wow, you're dreading going to train him. He's not going to be here one day to really relish and embrace that time with him because the multiple the multiple presidential elections, and I'm not political, but the, what he taught me, the conversations, and he even allowed me to come a little out of that box and go, but, and I would tease him even, he was a very, very kind, stoic man, I would go, I got a great idea, you run for president, I'll be your vice president, let's go, <laughs> you know, and so it was a matter of my yeah. shifting my mindset and looking is something as, and this seems really simplistic and very trite, but to, you know, I'm a paper mate marker girl. It just this paper mate marker in the color of purple that I can actually have this. I can afford to go do, I can use this. You know, I, so I really had to pause, flip and start appreciating that even though a little, I, yeah. And even yeah. though I had all this stuff, how to simplify not too long ago, reinforcing the whole power of the pause, that post and on LinkedIn, I saw it on LinkedIn and that's how we connected where you said, okay, that's it. The power of pause. I went into my office and I erased everything on my dry erase board. And when you said that, I was like, part of me went into panic mode. Like, oh my God, she's going to forget everything she needs to do. <laughs> but then part of me was like, oh my God, that must've felt so liberating. Can you explain that, why you did that and the power of that pause? Yes. So that was, I can remember the day. That was January 19th. It was a Tuesday. Um, I went with my father to the emergency room thinking he was fine and he was fine. It just a couple of little things off. He was 90 with dementia, you know, just, you know, a little, one little thing was off and um, they did all this tests and everything. So it was about four hours. And unfortunately in this pandemic that we are in, when they're coming to take him and wheel him up and admit him, they want you out. Mm. So that's like, bye-bye. Say, say your goodbyes. We're kicking you out before they come down to even transfer. I'm like going, oh my gosh. So when I came home, after I was making phone calls, driving 10 minutes from the hospital to my home, to my doctor and preparing my husband and getting my mom all prepared and everything, there was all these uh, programs that I was going to launch and I was in a midst of a launch that really made me ugly. It was every default button showed up during this launch. Um, the launch, the program was supposed to start. This was Tuesday. It was supposed to start that Thursday. I canceled the program. 
I walked into my office here and I'm pointing to the board and it's still blank, by the way. <laughs> and I erased everything and I literally metaphorically lost. I must have lost about a, a hundred pounds of emotions, uh, 50 pounds, at least of emotions. The relief of letting go. And it was even the new um, program that I was launching, my um, virtual, my online virtual program. Once I let that, once I let that go, and once I sat here and went, wow, the pressures that I put on myself, enough, women started coming out of the woodwork. I'm like, what is this? Erasing and taking those pressures off of, I got to launch this, I got to have this, because I'm a very driven, controlling, high achieving (laughs) woman, (laughs) recovering perfectionist. Who's very self-aware. I love yeah, that. Thank you. <laughs> but to leave it, and I, and you know, I just, I just, I just brought that forth, by the way, on Friday, I was in a um, all day retreat with my mastermind group. We were winding down the mastermind and that was my thing. And that was my hot seat was, okay, I've got this six month program going. I need to go. What is next? And, you know, and my coach was sitting there going, what's behind all of that. And that is that I'm not enough. I don't have, and I'm not, I'm not, but but, but, but you got a plan. It's, this is business. I got to have that calendar. And she's like, it's that default. I'm not enough. I'm not going to be successful when there's other ways of being successful, like coming in and erasing a board and letting go. Yeah. Well, and sometimes we get too much into a pattern, especially if you have kids and a family, you're just, it's constant. Go, go, go. You don't even know what to do with yourself. Honestly, on the days where I don't have anything to do, I'm a mess. I'm like, honey, I'm a mess in my head. Why relax? I can't relax. Do you think I'm going to just sit here and do nothing? (laughs) Things will be flying in my head. Like, oh, I got to do something. I got to paint the baseboards. I don't know. Something (laughs) ridiculous. Significant. Isn't that interesting? We're such a moving and there's other ways to move. There's movement and stillness, you know? So there's so many things that we can do. And I'm the same way. We were just, my husband and I were just up North and I'm sitting there going, okay, I just hiked. I stretched. I've had breath. Okay. Wait, wait. Oh, wait a minute. I got this magnificent view of Lake Michigan. I'm going to just sit here for a minute. You know, it's just, it's really got to do. What are we going to do up here? I'm not going to sit here all year. It's like, wow. But see, with that being said, after um, I went through the whole process with my father, that evening when he passed, the next morning we were scheduled to pack the car up, take the dogs, drive to South Carolina. We, we had a home rented for two weeks. And that Friday, yeah, I looked at my husband, I said, I'm not going. He goes, oh, yes, you are. He goes, if I have to peel you in the car, we're getting up at 4 a.m. We're going to pull on out of here. It's the best thing I ever could have done. Really? Oh, I would have done what you said. I would have been like, forget the it. Best really? thing, changing up the environment. Um, and we were still going to go, even if my father had not paid us, because we were doing everything via phones and iPads. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. when I got down there, I had, well, first of all, I canceled clients and I stayed very minimally off of social media. Gosh, what an opportunity after, and I walked every morning because, you know, one of the dogs, my one dog and I, we hike and we walk. Stayed in my workout clothes all day, no shower, no makeup, plopped on the couch, and I would watch some Netflix stuff. I'm like, you did? it was like chicken, it was like, what is it? it chicken soup for the you know, for the for the greening soul. You know? Oh, you just needed time to veg and just to be. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. Now I don't think there's anything anybody could hear to really prepare you for the loss of a loved one. But was there something that really did take you, even if it maybe is financially, just a heads up to everybody? Ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions. Um, We were blindsided. I thought my father was going to walk out of the hospital because the first five days out of those 10, he was fine. And uh, so every time all the communications is telephone because of the pandemic, they're not letting you in if they're fine. And so I would just questions, 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 questions. And if they were, if these uh, attending physicians didn't have time for all my questions, then I would say to them, look, you let me know in your schedule today, 
when we can have another conversation, because I got a lot of questions here. I want to know medications. What do you think? What's going on? Who am I going to be talking to next? Because I talked to two attending physicians, day nurse, night nurse, infectious disease, um, you know, uh, rapid response people. I mean, I was, I was talking to them all. I mean, they were, cause I was my father's voice. I was the power of attorney. And that just circles back around from, you know, what we started this conversation with, you got to stand up and just be, show your bold voice. Yes. Yeah. And just ask, I'm not one to settle for what someone's telling me on the phone when it comes to mm. situations like this, I ask, tell me the medications, how you realize my father has dementia, you know, and the nurses were phenomenal, you know, and so they were taking very good care of my father. I knew that because I would get on an iPad call and I would ask the nurse, give me a tour of the room, mm -hmm. you know, and I've been in the hospital. I mean, I know what the floor looks like. And so, yeah, you know, I just want to yeah. see, <clears throat> do you have my father propped up? Are the curtains open? Um, is the TV on for him? You know, I mean, not that he's not capable of doing this stuff, but, you know, he's out of his element, you know? So yeah, I'd, every time I got on a call with him, give me a tour of the room. Gosh, you've been so inspirational to us. You've given us this confidence. I don't know if you realize how much you have, but just, <sighs> yeah. And the power of the pause, confident to uh, just accept time to relax and appreciate the little things. Yes. And it's a practice because I don't do that every day. I admit it. It's a practice. And Sandy, that <laughs> next time you're sitting there and you think you need to paint baseboards or something, you give Kim Boudreaux Smith a call and you and I'll hike together. We'll go for a walk. <laughs> okay. Deal. Deal. You are so wonderful. What's the best way to find you and follow you and support you and everything that you Oh, doing? gosh. I would love for your listeners to come on over to LinkedIn. Reach out to me. It's Kim Boudreaux Smith. It's my full name. And just say in the back end when you connect that Sandy is a rock star and I saw you on her show. So, so that I know where you're coming right. from. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. You. Who's paying for that big wedding? The guidelines every parent should follow, including you. Grab a chair. We take a seat at the kids' table next. All right. Welcome to the kids' table. We're here with Susan Beecham. She is the founder of Money Savvy Generation. Hello, Susan. Hello, Sandy. All right. This is going to be a fun one. Well, I don't know. I don't know if fun's the right word. A little bit stressful when you hit this point in your life as a parent, you almost start to get panic attacks. What do kids expect when it comes to paying for the wedding? How much should the parents pitch in? Should the parents pitch in? And, uh, and yeah. Okay. So let's see what the kids say. Okay. Who do you think should pay for the wedding when it's time to get married? Who should pay for the wedding? Uh, probably the people that are getting married because... So the couple? Yeah, it would seem weird to have your guests pay. No, it's either the... Well, that's a funny... That is funny admission into the wedding. I like that idea. But typically, it's either the parents or the couple. Yeah, probably the couple because the parents, they probably paid for other things and they already have to pay for a gift for you, so don't make them pay extra for the whole wedding. Ah, okay. What do you think? Who should pay for the wedding? I think the couple because it's their wedding, so they should pay for their stuff. So mom and dad should not help out at all. We're recording this, so I'll play it for your parents. <laughs> um, so I think the couple should. Okay. All right. I didn't even know that it was an option for the parents to pay. So you didn't? No. I thought you just the couple saves up for it. Now that I know that's an option, the parents should definitely pay for the wedding. Why not? How much do you think, on average, should a wedding cost? Um, I mean, I would say $500 to $1,000. Okay, $500 to $1,000. What do you say? How much does a wedding cost? Um, maybe... How would I say it? Um, I think, I think, um, like to like ninety to a hundred dollars. I think ninety to a hundred dollars. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I would actually say this would make sense. Fifty thousand to a hundred thousand. That makes sense for everything total, like the dress, the food, the 
Everything that makes sense, 50 to 100,000. And the couples should be responsible to pay for it. No, I said the parents. If that's oh, yeah, that's right. You changed your mind. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> um, I love I love that they all think they should pay until yeah. they find out parents could pay. I think it just ruined like, this for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this. Part. I know <laughs> ignorance is maybe bliss. No, mm -hmm. no, Th they will find out. So the average cost today of a wedding is about $33,900. How do I know that? I Googled it like everybody else. And according to what I've read, parents of the bride and the groom contribute two thirds. What's incredibly interesting to me is brides parents still pay more about $12,000 and a groom's parents pay $7,000. That we is so crazy. Are we in 21? Are women still coming with a dowry? All right. That's another podcast, but it just, it, it's, a, you know, of course I'm a mother of two girls. So, yeah. you know, yeah. this, I get it. Yeah. So only one in 10 couples pay it all, which I thought was very interesting as well. Now, regardless of what your reasons are for why you're considering contributing or not contributing to your child's wedding. I want to give you a heads up on a few things. Okay. A wedding is an exercise in budgeting for both you, the parents and the kids. If you don't put a number on the table for what you're willing to contribute, or if you don't discuss what you can or can't contribute, then you've set yourself for a, up for a lot of heartburn because a budget is what keeps everyone understanding what the limits are. And if you understand what the limits are, you can work beneath your limits. If you don't, then you parents put yourself in the position of saying no to everything that yeah. you can't afford or no to something that you find objectionable. Maybe your child wants to spend $10,000 on a wedding dress and you've never bought anything outside of TJ Maxx that was over $30. Well, you know, this sounds very familiar to the whole college, college discussion, right? If you don't yeah. set the budget, then as the parent, you kind of feel either really guilty and you're just going to say, okay, fine, I'll pay. Or yeah, there's a, there's a heated discussion and feelings are going to be hurt. So Sandy, I was at a chamber of commerce meeting, uh -huh. sitting around a table of 10 people when the, the topic of a wedding came up and the man next to me said, um, well, I've, I've told my daughters what I'm going to contribute. I'm going to contribute $10,000 to their wedding. And I said, how old are your daughters? And he said, in high school. And I thought, wow, talking that soon about something so far in the future but I thought I'd try it because mine were in high school. And I gave them a number. My number was different. I gave them a number of $25,000. And I said, that's what your dad and I will strive to contribute. We will save towards that number from now until the time you get married. Circumstances could change. We could have a crisis. We could have a housing crisis. I like how you put the fine print in your contract. Okay, I like that. <laughs> right? Because what is it? Forewarned is forearmed. And if you tell kids early enough, I have done this early enough, they wrap their heads around it. So I have two that are getting very close to the date when I'm going to have to take the investment out and hand it over to them. And they have known since high school what the number is. And Sandy, they know that I, their dad and I will give them the check and then what kind of cake, what kind of place they have it at, what kind of band they have, what kind of dress. I'm not saying no. Uh, they have their budget. Okay, they set their budget. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine the, mo the emotion, money, money and emotion are so intric mm -hmm. intricately tied. And saying no to a, a daughter's wedding dress makes you feel like a bad mother. Don't put yourself in that position. It is not too early to talk to kids about what your expectations are for, for contributing to big events like college or wedding or car. And then 
give your kids some credit because they will then begin to adapt to what you're saying. But do let them know if there's a crisis, if the market crashes, if you're, if one of yeah. you gets sick and can't work, this could impact that contribution limit. But do don't you, take the joy out of the wedding by not giving them a heads up. What do you feel about the parents who say, well, it's an either or. I pay for college or I pay for a wedding. Um, I think they've been very clear. So I as long they, as you're clear from the get-go, doesn't matter what decision you make, because I guess there's no right or wrong decision. It's based on whatever your financial situation right. is. But as long as you're clear as soon as you can be, so you mm -hmm. establish the, the expectation. Because it isn't something that happens at the moment they're trying to have the transaction. Yeah. So imagine telling your kid as they're graduating from high school, by the way, I'm not paying for college. You wouldn't do that, would you? No, I don't know a parent that would do that. They would have been having conversations long before. Yeah. A wedding okay. is exactly the same kind of transaction. Set their expectations. They get their heads around that. It's okay. You're not the only parent that's saying that. And sometimes I think we feel like we're the only parent setting boundaries. Yeah. And if truth be told, there's a lot of parents setting a lot of boundaries, but our kids aren't going to come home and tell us about that. They're only going to tell us about the kid who has a boundary. <laughs> of course. Right? Of course. Okay. Awesome. And you said it before that kids, as much as they re will resist, they need those boundaries and they actually feel more, most comfortable when they, they have the boundaries. They feel in control. They feel safer. Um, and let me tell you the epilogue. So uh, one of my daughters is going to use every bit of that wedding money to have the wedding of her dreams. The other one is using it as a down payment on a house. Ooh. City Hall. Uh oh, which one's your favorite now? No, I'm just kidding. I won't. I won't pressure you like. That. <laughs> you know what? I love. I love them both. I love them both because it wasn't my choice. It was their choice, and yeah. they're happy. And you know, we're only as happy as our unhappiest child. So there you it go. Works. Okay, nice. Thank you, Susan. How do we uh, find you and follow you? You can find me on my blog at susanbeecham.com and you can find tools and other products that help you talk and teach your kids about money at our website, moneysavvy.com. There you go. Another episode. If you ever have a question you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, just reach out. If you have a guest you want me to try to get on the show, let me know. Or if you need help talking to the kids about money, this podcast is for you. So you let me know. We raise a glass now like we do at the end of every show and say cheers to being financially confident women. Talk to you next week.